0: So one way of framing the meditative path or the meditative journey is that it is a journey from applied attention to sustained attention. And for many of you, as you begin in the early days of this retreat, this is actually what you will be doing. It's what you will be practicing So if I just define these terms a little bit, applied attention begins with intention. You know, when you come to sit in the hall or go on your walking path, it's not just a sort of random, chaotic time, hopefully, that you actually bring into those beginnings a sense of intentionality, the intention to be awake, the intention to be present, to be clear, to be mindful. And you are actually introducing that intention into a kind of psychological, emotional landscape that can often feel fairly chaotic, unrestrained, um, unsteady. So we make the intention. And we can see how... All of meditation practice really begins with this sense of intentionality, knowing where we are, how we intend to be present. But what in our experience we see is we make the intention and the intention then gets hijacked and undermined by many factors. You can see how that intention to be awake, the intention to be present, it gets hijacked by the habits, primarily habits, of fantasy, of daydreaming, of being lost in stories and narrative. And what you often see in, in, in meditation practice is this reality that our habits, our psychological habits, often appear to be stronger <clears throat> to hold more power than our intention. We could create a lot of tension around that, and a lot of reactivity around that, or earn a lot of judgment around it, or we could just acknowledge that that is the reality of the moment. So we find ourselves in the face of habit Again, becoming forgetful. We forget our intention. Now, we come back. Rather than judging, rather than resisting, rather than reacting, we take this other pathway of nourishing, cultivating, more commitment to the intention that we began with. We come back. We forget, and then we remember. We forget and then we renew the intention. And with practice in that way, the intention, the intention that we bring, actually begins to hold more power and it begins to have more fruition. We start to see that this, this work of, of developing intention and the developing of attention, the attention of mindfulness, that follows on the heel of intention. It requires effort, it requires motivation, it requires interest, it requires commitment, patience and perseverance. But it's so important to remember and to recollect that as we are developing this intentionality, this calm commitment to intentionality, we are actually developing the awakening factors. You know, and in the Buddhist teaching, the awakening factors are always set alongside the kind of deluding or, or veiling factors. So although it can seem, you know, at times I know it can just seem, oh, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, when am I ever going to stop having to come back? It's very important to remember what is actually happening in the background of that commitment to intentionality. There is actually developing these very wholesome awakening factors of heart. Now, with practice, and you know, there's a time frame here, it's not like day two, day three, you know, we should be accomplished in this. There isn't actually a schedule, there isn't a timetable, there isn't a time frame. But we begin to see that with the growing ability to. Uh, sustain renew the intention, there is a growing ability to sustain the attention and to sustain the intention. It might be with the breathing, it might be with mindfulness of the body, it might be with one of the brahma-viharas, but what we start to see is this movement from you know very committed, disciplined effort to a greater sense of ease within the effort, you begin to see grow a more, a more natural mindfulness. Now, in this journey from applied to sustained attention, it is actually a journey through our mind. We should, you know, not think it's anything other than that. It is a journey through our mind, and it is a journey through all the range of mental states. Psychological and emotional states that have been familiar to us through our lives. Hmm? Now, it's not as if on the cushion or in the walking path you are encountering, you know, brand new mental states you've never encountered before. Isn't there often a ring of familiarity about them? Ah, I know this one. Ah, yes, this is familiar to me. This, I have been here before. Now, in the Buddhist teaching, you know, there is a whole range of mental states talked about. Many of them are very lovely, very delightful, uh, very joyful. Mental states of calmness, mental states of kindness, of spaciousness, of serenity, of, of care. And there's also the recognition that there are mental states which are actually quite difficult and quite challenging to be clear within. Now, in, these, in the Buddhist teaching, some of these states that are difficult, they're called difficult not because they're bad or because they're wrong, but because in a very real way what they do is simply abstract our capacity to see clearly. They abstract our capacity to see things the way they actually are. Because of that in obstructing quality, sometimes this range of mental states are called hindrances. From Pali, from Pali the word nirvana actually translates as veils. Veils. So they're veiling our capacity to see. They're veiling our capacity to be clear in the moment. Now, I just want to list them, and I don't want you to sort of at this point just tune out because you know these so well. But list some of these mental states. The craving for sensual uh, sensual pleasure, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. Now, in my experience in teaching, people can create very unhelpful attitudes towards these mental states. I mean, sometimes if people are new to practice and they encounter these mental states and they seem so dense at times, people can become very, very agitated, almost hysterical. You know, this, this shouldn't be happening, I must be doing something wrong. You know, everybody else is a Buddha except for me. This tends to be more new students. People with more experience can create even <coughs> more unhelpful attitudes. And I think if we're used to coming on retreats and we're encountering some of these mental states, we can formulate an attitude of regarding the hindrances as just a bit of a nuisance. You know, they're kind of like bad news, they're a bit of a nuisance, they're annoying, but you know, we'll just wait them out and in a few days we'll get over them and then our practice can begin. Now, in the Buddha's teaching, certainly the hindrances are not something to get over, but they are the most deeply embedded mental states and habits to understand. They are what suffocate and deny awakening. And in reality, as the Buddha presented it is really only a fully awakened being who is free of the hindrance factors. So we get a sense of the size of the cloth. You no, know? it's not about a few days, I get over them, and then I get on with the business that I'm supposed to be doing. We could say that actually the whole of the path is concerned with understanding and uprooting the hindrances. It's also true that the hindrances are in reality the ground of awakening. It's also important, and I think it's one to really stress this. It's very important to imagine a time that you will come into practice and into your life and these mental states will not be present. It's very, hard to, very important to hold that as a reality rather than just seeing them as somehow part of the structure of what you go through on retreats. It's very hard to imagine a time when the hindrances are not present because they have been uprooted with understanding. Now, the Buddha used the simile of looking at your reflection in a pool of water. When we're looking in that pool of water with a mind that is cultivated by craving, it is like looking into water that is colored with dye. The presence of aversion is like looking into a pool of water that has been heated to boiling point. Sloth and torpor is like trying to see a reflection in a pool of water that has been overgrown with algae. Restlessness and worry is like trying to look into water that is agitated and stirred by strong winds. And the presence of doubt is like trying to see your reflection in water that is dark and muddy. I think you can probably relate to this in your experience. You see how these mental states really skew our capacity to see anything. Basically, um, what we don't see clearly, we also can't respond to clearly. What we don't see as it is, including the mental states, we can't respond too clearly. So then often our, our our response to the mental states is one of another hindrance. You know, we don't like the presence of aversion or doubt, so we get agitated. You know, or we don't like the presence of sloth and torpor, so we add doubt to it. So our response to the mental state is very much colored by the mental state itself. And often what we do is we often end up with compounded hindrances. This is what we're really asked to see, not only in our practice, but of course this is true in every area of our life. The Buddha used other similes to describe what it is like to be free from the hindrance states. He said, to be free from sensual craving is is likened to being free from debt. To be free from aversion is like recovering from a terrible illness. To be free from sloth and torpor, he likened it to being released from prison. And to be free from restlessness and worry is likened to being liberated from slavery. And to be free from doubt is like crossing a dangerous desert safely. Now what I think is very important to understand about the hindrance states is the Buddha speaks of them as being the five manifestations of the three unwholesome roots that cause suffering. So the five hindrance states are actually differing manifestations of the unwholesome roots of craving, ill-will, and delusion. So it's almost like craving, and ill-will, and delusion are finding form and finding shape in these states of mind and reactivity. The roots of craving, ill-will, and delusion, they are actually themselves a manifestation of confusion and ignorance. So to uproot the hindrances is actually to uproot the causes of suffering and suffering itself. So I really want to put this kind of response to these mental states very much within the context of insight practice, very much within the context of wisdom, rather than thinking, you know, I just need to find a shortcut around these states, you know, and then I'll be doing something really wise and clear and real practice. Now in the Satipatthana Sutta, the hindrances are actually turned into objects of meditation. They become the object of meditation. They're not something separate. They're actually turned into the places where we learn to develop calm and insight and the primary awakening factors. Now I will just look at these mental states and how they're related to confusion, just a little bit one by one. And I'm sure we will talk repeatedly about this over the month. Let us look at sensual craving. Hmm? Sensual craving. Now, it's very important to acknowledge this is not a repudiation or a denial of sensual pleasure. Hmm? It's a very big difference between sensual pleasure and sensual craving. We have to, it's important to acknowledge that there is much that is lovely. You know, there's loveliness in nature. There's loveliness in a good meal. There are delightful sounds, delightful sights, delightful feelings that run through our bodies and minds. Probably not as much as we would like, but they are there. And sometimes we can be so. I find sometimes in practice people can be so suspicious and fearful about falling into craving that they meet even the delightful with a sense of suspicion. You know, oh yes, nice, but I better get on. You know, um, you know, oh yes, yes, a wonderful environment, but I mustn't look at it. You know, even tasting a a wonderful bite of food, there's this little voice in the background saying, don't cling, don't cling, don't cling. You know, as if we are so afraid of the lovely, uh, so afraid of craving, that we actually package the lovely into it. And this is what turns into kind of aversion based practice. Sometimes we misname it renunciation. But renunciation is not about shutting out the world. Renunciation is not about denying the lovely. Renunciation is much more rooted to actually letting go of suffering and the causes of suffering. And the lovely has never been a cause of suffering. In fact, it is so important to incorporate the lovely into our practice. You know, because if you walk outside and you just you know you just take in the trees, the space, the sky. I mean, you can really see how that receptivity and the sensitivity in that also contributes to very wholesome states of mind. Contributes to a greater sense of spaciousness, of ease, of relaxation. And it's very important to use the lovely as an ally in our practice because it gladdens our hearts. It gladdens our hearts. And it helps to cultivate that sense of spaciousness and joy all important threads in the fabric of awakening. Now, sensual craving is very, of a very different order than the simple appreciation of what is pleasant. It is much more in the realm of compulsion. Huh? The, the hunger, the craving, the appetite that cannot be answered. The appetite that can never be satisfied. The wanting that has no answer. You know, and certainly like in the Tibetan tradition, that that imagery of the hungry ghost is used, you know, of these poor beings, you know, who wander for eternity through the universe, you know, with these huge stomachs and these tiny little throats and mouths, endlessly hungry, but never being able to satisfy it. And this is actually the dukkha, the suffering of craving. Is that it has no answer and it is suffering. But it is also like when the Buddha talks about understanding the hindrances, he also the, the mental states of the hindrances, he also talks about understanding the conditions from which they arise. I mean, it is not that in our day we go through our, our entire day, you know, craving, hungering, you know, uh, prowling. It's not happening every moment in the day. It is a mental state that arises from conditions. There can be many kind of fleeting conditions that lead to the arising of craving. You know, just a sense of discontent or uh, even boredom, Uh, you know, sense. They can be very fleeting conditions, you know. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm just not very happy right now. I think I'll go and read the notice board. It's quite pathetic at times, but, you know, we have limited answers here to craving. But there are actually much more deeper roots of craving out there. And I think the deeper roots of craving really lie within a sense of insufficiency. You know, there is just not enough in this moment, or I am not enough. Life is not enough. The sense of there being something lacking, missing within ourself. And often we're using craving to try and satisfy that. But the Buddha actually talks about the delusion of craving... Because it is really looking for happiness in the wrong places. It's looking for sufficiency in the wrong places. It is looking for contentment in places where it cannot be found. Because you can see with craving how usually it turns us to seek, to prowl, how it gets projected into objects, meditation experiences, the second plate of lunch, you know, more of this, more of that, how it's projected in places that simply cannot provide an answer to that sense of lack. So the Buddha's answer to craving was not to deny the world, not to deny sensual pleasure, but instead of having this kind of free-range craving and free-range attention, to turn our attention very directly, inwardly, to the roots of craving. To really get a sense of that insufficiency of the moment, but also begin to gain the confidence that really the source of happiness, the source of joy, the source of sufficiency actually lies within our own hearts and not within the things of the world. And that is actually a leap of faith for many of us. But we begin by being mindful of the power of sensual craving. And how it, its tendency is to disconnect us from the way things actually are. The way things actually are in that moment might be the reality that there is a sense of discontent. There is a sense of insufficiency. But this is what we're asked to meet, not with craving, but with kindness, with compassion. To enfold the roots of craving whether it's just a fleeting moment or a more deeply rooted belief system, to enfold the roots of craving in mindfulness, in kindness, in compassion. Contentment is also very important, the cultivation of contentment. You know, the cultivation of contentment is often about calming the narrative. Because we can see how much craving, you know, I need this, I must have this, I rely on this, how much narrative begins to build up around that, how much story begins to build up around that. And it's so important to begin just to calm the story, not looking for the ideal moment, the ideal meditation to be mindful in, but to know that that is the ideal moment. The second of these mental states that the Buddha gave so much emphasis to in this path is the mental state of ill will or aversion, in all its forms. And when we think of ill will and aversion, it's so important not to think of you know these great states of rage and anger, but you know these little moments of irritability, annoyance, impatience, intolerance. Judgment, and again, it is placing unhappiness in the wrong place, isn't it? We'd say, Oh, if this was over, if this finished, if that person was different, if my meditation was different, if I had a different diet, a different room, a different zafu, it's a very big story, aversion. then I would be happy. But again, it is placing the source of unhappiness in the wrong places. Because, you know, quite frankly, that Zafu really doesn't have the power to destroy my meditative bliss. It is in my own heart. It is in my own response. And the energy of ill will is to turn away from. The energy of mindfulness is to turn toward. And throughout the whole of the teaching, you know, the Buddha recognized this incredible power of ill will in our lives, in our minds, in our world. The suffering that is caused from it. And he really just said there is one antidote, which is kindness. Which is kindness. And he didn't talk about necessarily, you know, necessarily formally practicing metta or loving kindness meditation But he spoke about kindness being the underlying attitude, crucial attitude, of all meditation practice. And it is so important, I think, in our practice to really be sensitive to, to really be mindful of the little moments, the little moments of aversion. Not just the big moments. Not thinking that the little moments of irritability or intolerance or judgment don't matter. Because those little moments are really like the arms and legs of the same demon of the big moments of rage and and anger. Recognizing how much fear is at the root of ill will. The fear of not being able to bear. The fear of being overwhelmed. The fear of being harmed in some way. How that leads to the reactivity of pushing away, of overcoming, of trying to get away from. But again, really, really being aware of what a big story ill will and aversion often carries because we're always trying to explain it to ourselves, aren't we? I feel annoyed because, 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 because as if that's going to make us feel a little happier with our aversion you know? or we see the judgment directed inwardly or outwardly You know, I am like this and I've always been like this and everybody tells me I'm like this and I'm always going to be like this it has a very long story And we really, really see the importance of calming always within all these mental states, calming the story, needing to meet ill will as suffering. Not as something bad, not as something wrong, but being able to meet ill will as suffering, that asks for kindness, that asks for compassion. The third of these states is mental states, sloth and torpor. Now, you know, I I think it's quite good to use these very evocative words, you know, rather than just dullness or tiredness. It's sloth and torpor. You know, you really have a sense of that density of it. You know, where, you know, it feels like you could sleep your whole life. You know, where the mind feels so heavy. The body feels so unalive. And that, you know, you couldn't move through a whole day, a whole sitting or a whole walking. And at the end of it, realize, you know, there's hardly been a moment of mindfulness within it. It is so veiling. It has other aspects. It's very much part of the depression landscape, hot and torpor, you know? it's very much part of boredom, of listlessness, of disinterest and noticing that it very often arises in relationship to the neutral. You know, if something really pleasant is happening in our meditation or our life, we're not usually kind of nodding off. If something really unpleasant is happening, we're often really quite awake because we're really quite interested. We can often start making projects. But much in life, much in life actually falls within this middle ground of neither extremely pleasant nor extremely unpleasant. And our response to that is often to sink, to disappear, to a kind of yeah, you know, get swallowed almost by this mental state of heaviness. Now it's very I think it is helpful to acknowledge that. You know, we're kind of trained in our lives to have stimulus-based attention, aren't we? You know, something stimulates us, we're attentive. Something doesn't stimulate us, we're inattentive. You know, it's kind of the training of our lives. It's certainly the training of our culture. So it's a very major adjustment to make in meditation practice to be developing a quality of mindfulness, a quality of attentiveness that is not just stimulation-based. But developing a quality of attentiveness that is really rooted in interest, in curiosity, particularly rooted in a sense of motivation, knowing what our path is, knowing the beginnings of the path, knowing the direction, knowing its fruition, to really have that finely honed sense of motivation. Now, dreamy states can last a long time, but they disappear the moment we start developing the quality of sustained energy and interest in them. So rather than getting over soth and torpor and then being interested, it's very important to acknowledge this is what we're asked to be interested in to really explore this mental state that can appear in so many different areas in our lives because this is where we're really developing this different quality of mindfulness which is not based simply on being forced into attentiveness by stimulation. Sometimes it's a question of committing to one sitting of interest and sustained energy, one walking of sustained interest and energy. The fourth of these mental states is restlessness and worry. Now, the reality is I think we live in a very agitated world and we can be all too familiar with an agitated mind. We can worry about anything. We can be agitated about anything. We can worry about lunch. We can worry about whether we're going to get enough sleep tonight. We can worry about what happens after the retreat. We can worry about what that sitting's going to be like. We can worry about the person in the retreat who we're struggling with. There is no rest. And it is so important to see that agitation and restlessness and worry is picking up on this very human core theme of Anxiety of anxiety. You know, and a Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of ignorance. Anxiety is the mood of not knowing, of not having a sense of refuge, not having a sense of of ease, not having a place of of confidence, not having a sense of inner, inner stability and resources. Anxiety is always going to be the response to that. Now, it is very important to be aware of the body when there's restlessness and worry because it will move. You know, the sense doors will be in kind of overdrive. You know, the eyes will be moving, the ears will be moving, the, you know, the body will be moving. Everything will be wanting to move, eh? wanting to move, and the mind will be moving. Huh? It is where we tend to do a lot of proliferating thinking, A lot of constructing. What do we place in the middle of restlessness and worry? Calm. Not just look at calm as a fruition, but as a cultivation. The cultivation of calm. And some of you have heard me tell this before, but one time on a retreat, somebody who was in the midst of tremendous restlessness and agitation found themselves doing what people can do, uh, reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. And the first instruction they read was, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. Aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. Instead of being pushed through life by anxiety, to really aim the nozzle of attention of mindfulness at the mental state itself. To calm, to cultivate calm. You know, this practice was never about cultivating calm outside the difficult, but within the difficult. Never about cultivating freedom outside of the difficult, but within the difficult. And the last of these mental states is skeptical doubt. Very, very different than investigation and questioning. It's almost like with skeptical doubt, we require proof before we commit ourselves. Isn't that interesting? That we we require evidence before we commit ourselves. Like we might hear that renunciation sounds like a really good idea, but I really want the proof that it leads to happiness before I let go of anything. Mm -hmm. We might say that mindfulness sounds like a fine idea, but I really want to know that it has this effect before I actually commit myself to it. This is what skeptical doubt does, it, 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 it really wavers around commitment, it's really doubting whether this can lead to this and I want the proof before I actually commit myself. And of course unfortunately I have to say the past doesn't really work that way, we have to commit ourselves and then see the fruition unfold from that commitment. You know, doubt, doubt is not just in the practice. Most skeptical doubt, of course, is rooted very much in our doubt in ourselves, our doubt in our capacity, our doubt in our ability to do what is asked of us in this practice, our doubt in our ability to be free, to be awakened, our doubt in our capacity really to cultivate unconditional kindness and compassion. But this is actually what the Buddha really challenged. You know, because the Buddha she didn't make, and this teaching and teachers throughout time have never made those conditions. You know, that there are the select few who are capable and the vast majority not. The Buddha actually once said that if I didn't know that it was possible for you to do this, I wouldn't ask it of you. If I didn't know that it was possible for you to do this, I would not ask it of you. Now mindfulness is clearly essential in understanding these mental, any mental state and the power that they have. We need to be mindful of the states of our mind. In the beginning of a walking, in the beginning of a sitting, in the middle of a walking or a sitting, in the end of a walking or sitting. To be able to ask ourselves, what is the state of my mind in this moment? It's not asking for judgment, but it is asking us to cultivate that kind of clarity, being aware of how our mental states are the forerunners of our choices, our actions, the kind of thoughts that we have, asking for a profound level of attentiveness, of mindfulness to come out really of the prison of the hindrances. To know that there is a way out, that there is an end to these unhelpful mental states. And that end is really born of understanding them. Understanding the mental states as they are present and responding wisely rather than responding with yet another unhelpful mental state. It is rooted in the entire practice of insight meditation. And it is, we do not have to look far for mental states. Everyone has one right now. And it is simply knowing that we can be aware of that. So, thank you. wish you a very... Thank you for listening.